I'm a little older. So my parents were always telling me like, you know, don't, don't play video games all day. You can't really do anything with that where that's, I'm glad the, <laughs> I'm glad everyone has, has flipped the script and, and, uh, and proven all parents wrong that, that you can. Everybody and welcome to How the Fuck Did You Get That Job, the show where two not-so-interesting guys ask interesting people one question and then interrupt them as they try to answer it. Joining us today is Bobby Redford. Bobby graduated from the University of South Carolina in the early 2000s. He was a graphic designer for Pennington Seed before becoming the marketing director of AdDrive. After a brief stint there, Bobby moved on to become the director of product development at Loud Door LLC. He stayed with the company for over eight years. Today, he is a self-proclaimed barbecue prep master, chili champ, and the pinball wizard. He is also the director of marketing technology at the hunting apparel giant, Realtree. Bobby, welcome to the show, and how the fuck did you get that job? What's up? Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it's been a crazy road, you know? You know, you, you touched on some of the some of the higher points of, of the career path that I've taken, and, um, you know, out of high school, kind of like what every high school kid tries to figure out is like, what do I want to be when I grow up? <laughs> and uh, that was something I kind of always asked myself, but like advertising was really one of those things where the just, it, it's always struck me. It's always been kind of part of my life. Like growing up, parents would take me to, we'd go to like flea markets and auctions and like buy and, and sell things. But the advertising aspect of what we would find at those spaces is what drew me into advertising, like old school, like Pepsi and Coke and beverage advertising and like pinball machines and Coke machines and things like that, that we could pick up. Like you guys have probably seen those shows on, you know, like pickers and um, like those guys that basically flip and restore things. Like that's what I was doing, you know, high, high school, college, like even before high school growing up and doing some of that stuff. And it, it's a weird path that brought me into like loving graphic design and like loving the advertising space. Was so, there anything from, from back then where like, like maybe like a specific pinball machine or like a specific like ad that kind of like stuck with you that you were like, that's just good design. Like that was, that was just a cool looking machine. Back then I was, it was more the iconic thing. So like the Coca-Cola Santa Claus and, and things that stuck out like that. And I was always trying to ID, you know, it, it became a game to me, much like, you know, the advertising side. I also got into sports cards. So collecting those and collecting advertising and always trying to figure out like when the year things were made and just be super knowledgeable about that space. You know, you'd ask if there was one thing that stuck out, I would say, gosh, I know there's a lot of things that stick out. I have a, I have a couple of pinball machines in the house and, and some old stuff that I had kept through the years. Like I have a couple of Coke machines that we can keep beer and stuff in, um, <laughs> things like that. But no, I don't know if there's any, any one thing that stuck out. I did. I, I'm always stuck to the vintage stuff. Anything with a cool like vintage look really, really struck me as like, that's just awesome. People really had to, you know, I think a lot of people can design now just because thanks to computers, which is great. To me, that that whole like, you know, picking up a paintbrush or a pencil to, to create like even window art or the lost art of, of just gigantic painted billboards on the side of buildings, like some of those things that are very, very quickly fading away still, I still gravitate towards that. So, you know, 
Yeah. You got got the bats behind you. That's that's a great example. Oh, old school baseball bats. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Those are, I picked all those up just from growing up since I'm a couple of those, I don't know, eight, nine years old. So, (laughs) yeah. and then it, you know, in the in the in the late '90s, you uh, decided to attend University of South Carolina, t- taking your talents to Columbia. Uh, what you know, what made uh, becoming a gamecock, gamecock the right choice? You know, I uh, grew up an Army brat, so we never we never had a, necessarily a home base. And South Carolina quickly became the home base. My dad retired there, being in the military for 21 years, and really liked the area really liked the the friends and the people that I made. I really liked the school. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't at the, you know, it was on the list and it was someplace that I really wanted to go. And I just spending a lot of time um, in the area and kind of being influenced by others. Um, it's a big college town, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of, it's one of those campuses that's, it's also embedded into the city. So you've got a lot of, I mean, it's like every, almost everybody in Columbia seems like they're a gangcock. Just, being really attracted to the, you know, football, baseball, being able to, you know, ride down the road and go to a baseball game or a basketball game or kind of just connect with the university is, is what, uh, is what drew me there. So. When, when did you start taking that interest in advertising and applying it to graphic design and what, what did the graphic design like program or like getting into that even look like back then? Yeah, that, I jumped right into it. I always felt like I was pretty, pretty good at writing and I was drawn to computers. So just being able, video games is one of the things that, that got me into, you know, it's so funny to look now that, that people are making careers out of gaming and streaming and Twitch. And like, I think is amazing. I'm a little older. So my parents were always telling me like, you know, don't, don't play video games all day. You can't really do anything with that where that's, I'm glad the, I'm glad everyone has, has flipped the script and and, uh, and proven all parents wrong that that you can you know you can make something out of that um, you know if you do the right thing. But I would say just a mixture of like of the graphic design came from video games, wanting to be able to to animate things, wanting to be able to just put out whatever was in in my head onto a computer onto paper. Um, and then I would say within probably the first two years of college. It, everything started to connect from like, oh, I can apply this to business. Oh, I can, because um, I, when I was in school, you know, we didn't have social media platforms. I was, I started my career um, outside of college in the infancy of Facebook, in the infancy of some of these social media platforms. So that wasn't readily available and at my disposal where I, you know, we still learned how to buy <laughs> newspaper, print media and television commercials and things like that. And I knew that's not what I wanted to do. That seemed like the most boring thing in the world to me at the time. It was more like, well, if I can, if I can get into the graphic side of things, that seems limitless because I can continue to, to push myself. I can learn on my own. I can continue to evolve. And then not only that, I figured out very quickly that like I could do a ton of freelance if I wanted to, or it seems like everybody was in, you know, had a need for design. Yeah. That when, uh, when you, you mentioned Facebook kind of in its infancy, when you first started seeing it and like you, you talk about making the connection between graphic design business, and then you start seeing Facebook pop up, did you connect those dots right away? And were you like, Oh, this is like, this is going to revolutionize my, like what I'm good at. Like I, I now I can do it now. I'm, yes. I'm going to be a big tool. Yes. The, the tool that did that before Facebook where I connected the dots was MySpace. MySpace is, is what I felt. I was able to network 
much like you do now, like slide, like jumping into, into somebody's direct messages and like networking and trying to get things done or work on projects. My, that was my space for me. The best friends in the entire world, I actually, I uh, connected with just asking for work. Like he had a t-shirt company, he needed designs. And I just hit him up on MySpace, said, love what you're doing. Can I design shirts for you? And then like, we hit it off and like, there's no looking back. We've worked together. God, what year was that? I was going to say that was 04, 05. So 15 years. And we still, you know, we still do anything and everything that we can together when it warrants it. But it's one of those things where like, if I hadn't reached out to him, I probably wouldn't have gone down the career path that like, you, you know, you bulleted out at the beginning of this. It was, it was just like that, that kind of kickstarted my journey into to getting more ingrained into putting the design together with the business side of things, learning what, you know, we talked about ad drive and loud door. Those were purely performance marketing um, places. And that's when I feel like I really found like I could, you know, you could spend money and then you could see an immediate result. And then you fold that into pretty much everything else and how social media has evolved today is where you can put something out and five seconds later, you have an immediate result. You, you know exactly what the consumer may or may not want. You know how they react. Like I felt like that's where I was at early on in my career, you know, before social media is doing things that get immediate results and, and, you know, just kind of getting hooked on the performance side of things. For, for sure. And, you know, for ad drive, right? Like, what were you, you talked about spending money. Like what, what exactly did you start spending money on? Yeah. So that was um, <laughs> way back in the day when Blockbuster was still around and, and like, it was basically getting people onto those platforms, like early day Netflix, early, early days of, of Blockbuster when those were still like, <laughs> when they were still slinging DVDs, you know, we were able to go out and target you know, target people, you know, via email or Google or any, any major ad network platform to get them to sign up for, you know, for different offers or content hadn't made it onto my plate quite yet. Those were just, those were purely just, you know, direct performance advertising, but that's why I quickly made the, you know, the shift to Loudoor because we saw Facebook, you know, finally said, Hey, we're, we're opening up beyond college students. And then they started offering, their first advertising um, placement was called a flyer and they didn't even have business pages and things like that. But we saw a tremendous opportunity to be able to start building communities in a brand new social network, which is, which is what we did and what we had a lot of fun doing. And it's like so many people have great success doing that now on newly developed platforms like TikTok, like just embracing those platforms and creating you know, just creating as much as they can and then hopefully leaning the direction of where people are telling us like, yeah, that's, that's a great piece of content. Um, keep making more. So just being able to, being able to, you know, take those calculated risks and, and chase, you know, where the, where the consumer tells you. Like, so that was 2007 at Loudor. Like yeah. that's, that's early. And early, early. What was it like pitching some of those companies on like, Hey, so that thing that you think is for 13, because Dave and I are actually kind of like experiencing it now with like our clients and TikTok. Like, you know, that thing that 13 year olds are doing. Yeah. It's actually really useful and you should be using it and taking it seriously as a business. What, what was that experience like? It was, uh, it was different. We quickly learned that we needed to have more than just a community. We needed, you know, we were looking, we were also too looking at beyond the community, what can we do with that? What can we learn from it? Um, it? And we ventured into things like, all right, let's continue building communities around things that we like. It's no different than what a lot, like 
you know, I was reading about a few groups the other day that that's all they did is they got together, said, we're going to make these Instagram accounts. We're going to share each other's content and we're going to just kill it. And they are like, you know, like that, the, that's the one that comes to mind, like doing things. Those guys are, you know, are killing it on, on Instagram and, and, but they end up turning it into a business somewhat similar to what we were doing, but we were taking all these communities and we said, you know, what's, you know, what would be really valuable behavioral data. Like there's traditional market research out there. People still, you know, calling on the phone and asking, you know, do you have 20 minutes to spend with us? We're going to ask you a bunch of questions and then they'll go back and put it in a binder and sell it to an ad agency. It was boring. We figured like, let's, let's see what we can do. Let's see how we can make something engaging, make it very quick and make it very non-invasive. But we would take what we did was, you know, Facebook opened their API and they were like, all right, you can get likes, interest data. You can, you can check out all those connections. But we thought the next layer would be, let's take that behavioral data. So if we need to solve a problem for a brand, we can, we can take attributes. Let's just say here, here's an example. Let's just say an agency is trying to model a demographic, right? They're trying to go out there and say, hey, we, we think this person exists, but we need to prove it. Or if they don't exist, like who should our core demographic be for, you know, 2021 advertising campaign rather than just you know kind of making it up and thinking it exists so we go out and and you know deploy behavioral surveys and then basically take a statistically significant sample and bundle all that together and and be able to output those like actual demographic profiles and this again when you think about the infancy of like targeting on facebook on, on any social platform now is pretty incredible like you can you can get super granular. We couldn't get super granular then. It was, you know, you could say, hey, this guy likes Twinkies and Toyota trucks, and he likes these other things, but that we don't know the real gist of what that person likes on, on Facebook, if that makes sense. It's like, we don't know that that guy likes basketball, right? If he, he could, he could say he likes basketball, but where are all the other people, where's all the other audience that also likes basketball? Maybe they didn't declare that on Facebook. What else can we learn about them? What else can we do to help agencies and community like drive results? Because what they were doing way back then was it was like giveaway and sweepstakes. And then we ran into a lot of issues. Um, well, it was it ended up being our problem is that they say, hey, we just got, you know, 100,000 fans on our Facebook page for a giveaway, but now nobody cares about our content. <laughs> and and so that was the downfall is that they you know all the brands and businesses wanted the people but they just weren't doing you know maybe the right things to get that you know brand loyalist or the person who was really interested in the brand so the eli musk hundred true fans yeah it sounds like you guys were like it, like it's almost like the beta Cambridge Analytica, like like what Cambridge Analytica eventually was able to do, but like it had to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, ha I had a feeling that would come up, and you know, I think about that even when I've seen those documentaries, I was like, you know, we were we were on the cusp, and they added some layers. Like when I watched that that documentary, I don't see, I don't know if I'll get flack for this, I don't see a lot wrong with what they did because it's it's totally relevant. I think the media did, probably did a great job of making it the enemy because it's really hard to understand what was done. But the psychological part of what they did and how they were able to actually legit target people, you know, that granularly to people who were riding the fence to be able to target them one way or another, I think is, is genius. You know, 
what they were using it for. I'm like, not going to comment on that, but the process I think is super sound. And I think that's, you know, if we can ever get there without advertising and data being the bad guy, I think that's going to make everybody's life like advertising and marketing will probably be a little more seamless and simple for people if they understand like the, the data can be good. Like it can be used for good. We're just seeing, you know, magnified cases where the data is the bad guy and it's, it's really not. For, for sure. And I, I got one more question too. Is like in that infancy stage, like when you're explaining this to people, yeah. one, how much did you have to dumb it down? And two, were people like receptive to that, like the idea of that, of being that innovative or were, were people kind of just hesitant and even asking you if this is. I would say it was, it was very difficult to explain the process. You know, some of the, some of the use cases, I think probably the better one that, that tended to work most of the time was that, you know, it was finding that person who didn't, who didn't self-declare that they like basketball, but they may have all these other attributes that they've, or pages they've liked on Facebook and they actually do like basketball. So we were like finding those hidden audience. I think that would click for a lot of people. And then the other thing, the other benefit I think we had beyond, you know, molding and shaping those demographic groups was that we were creating content and engaging with all of these different communities. Like we thought of it as magazine verticals. Like if you go look at a magazine rack, like what are these common community interests and how can we feed them content they want? So what we were actually doing, I don't know that we, I don't felt like we knew that's what we were doing until a little bit later, but we had the perfect test ground to figure out what didn't, didn't work every time Facebook made an algorithm change. So we could go back to, you know, any of these brands or, or ad agencies and say, Hey, this is not working. Hey, they just changed this. This is what we're seeing work. You know, there were a lot of, I think early 2010s or whatever, you know, there were a lot of like newsfeed change was always like the big headline when they did that, it would, you know, kind of kneecap brands on what they were able to do and the visibility that they were able to get. We were trying, we would try to be on the forefront of that. So like, I remember us, you know, building these communities and we did a lot of media buying, like all this required a ton of media buying. So it was funny. I, I remember visiting the first Facebook office and it was a group of 12 people who were, you know, some of the first advertisers on Facebook <laughs> and sat down and being able to go by and like, you know, walk by Zuck's cubicle and just see how small that company was at the time. And then, you know, within two years, we were a preferred marketing developer and then joined a program that they had. Basically, it was just nurturing and helping developers utilize all the tools that Facebook had to offer. But going back to the campus like year after year and seeing seeing the explosive growth of like developers and businesses and people like utilizing what Facebook has to offer was pretty awesome to now where it's just like, I mean, it, the last time I went, it was like Disney world, like, you know, very closed campus and eat whatever you want, wherever you want. It just felt like a, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pretty amazing place. And, and it's been crazy to see how, how that company has grown and what they've been able to do. And, and it sounds like you guys were pretty platform specific, helping these companies and agencies, you know, succeed on Facebook. Yeah. I, as your time at, at Loudoor, like was, was progressing throughout like the 2010s, did you guys try to diversify platforms and how tough was that? You know, we looked at, um, we looked at Twitter um, because the problem we always came up against was that, you know, Twitter was a public fire hose of data. 
Facebook, Facebook still had, they, they were allowing people to be private with their data, which was great, but not everything was publicly available. You know, we felt like Twitter was kind of that, it was a very, it was a very mixed bag on what we could, what we could get from Twitter, just because it was so inundated with just junk a lot of the times in, in that, in that day. And really, that was really to, to us, the only platform that existed for quite a few years. Instagram was just barely coming out of the woodwork as their own company. And there wasn't anybody that was up for the challenge. You know, My, MySpace had sold and then they went away and came back and went away. That was kind of where we really focused. Our kind of pivot or um, addition to our offering was taking what we were doing, the modeling that we were doing on Facebook and testing it on other like platforms. So like a, like a Google, like are these, are these the same people who are using YouTube? Are these the same people in some of these other areas and some of these other ad networks that we can target with some of the same modeling criteria? So that that was kind of that was where we focused to make sure that it was applicable beyond Facebook because we saw the adoption of people just using Facebook and you know we thought likely never going away from it. It's like you know it's to the point now like everybody has one or an account at least or has had one um, that that. That's been the one, I, think, I feel like, constant thing where that's a, always been a, a really nice source of, of either you know, testing things or finding a community that's, that's super responsive. So. Inundated with data would be a good uh, tagline for Twitter if they ever want to switch things up. <laughs> totally would. <laughs> I, I want to take us up to, up to speed, right? Like, how, how did the, the Realtree opportunity to become a director of digital marketing over there come about? just interacting with a bunch of brands so my dad for about gosh he's still doing it trying to count the years at least 20 years has had his own outdoor you know hunting and fishing show and i've you know helped him along the way just like with marketing and website and social media and things like that so i've on both sides of the coin i've interacted with a lot of brands i've been interacted with a lot of you know agencies and things i've yet to to not see this but i, I truly believe like a lot of times the path you take in your career is dictated by the people that you interact with and that you know. And that's what happened. I, I knew somebody at, at Chevrolet and they said, hey, you know what? Realtree needs some help with Facebook. Can you help? And they knew that I was pretty, I was pretty embedded into the Facebook world. You know, I'd gone out there quite a bit. I'd been just totally embedded into that, that world. And I was like, yeah, sure. Let me see what I can do. And then conversations continued and, you know, I helped them out. And really it was like they, they found they had a need for somebody in the, who was way more fluent in the digital space. They were pushing along trying to, trying to figure out where Realtree belonged in the digital space. But like when I came along there, it's not just Facebook anymore. It's like, I think they felt maybe like they kind of had to be everyone to everything and be on every platform. And so it's, it's like, Hey, let's figure out where we can go, what we need to do. Just, and I thought, you know, how cool would it be to just, instead of doing work for a ton of brands and being, you know, kind of being strung out among brands and agencies and all these other things, let me see what it's like to just go, go work for a brand. And then I, I ended up here about three and a half years ago. So. One thing that strikes me about Realtree or like when, when I, where I get impressions from Realtree is partnerships. Yeah. How much of that were they doing at the time and how much of that was informed by the information that you were able to bring in? Yeah, partnerships, that's their bread and butter. Part because I think what a lot of people don't realize is that Realtree does not manufacture a product. Realtree manufactures demand for a camouflage. 
That <laughs> we do. Uh, we don't. We don't cut and sew anything. We don't make any physical good. You know, we do sell some branded items. You know, out of our own e-commerce store. But the where where we use our our strong suits are. You know, Bill Jordan creates the camouflage. He does research and development. He does design. They go out and design camo that blends in and does a really good job of it. And then we work with partners across the globe who put that on their products. So, you know, just like an Under Armour would have Realtree Camo on it, well, so could Nike or, you know, so could all these other brands. It could show up on a, you know, a Chuck Taylor or it could show up on a band shoe in the lifestyle side. Two years ago, Supreme had it in their fall catalog. So it's like, you have to work with all these very different companies. They're all, they all maybe apparel companies, but totally different sides of the, the earth when you think about somebody who's into athletic and fitness apparel and then you go over and like Supreme had you in their catalog or like you guys are on Chuck Taylor's or, or things like that. So Realtree is really good at partnerships. So I think that played up to a strong suit where I was used to working with multiple partners and kind of juggling multiple things. The exciting part was that we get to try and leverage those partnerships and make things happen. So like where I met David at, at um, you know, when he was working for Vayner Sports, it's like what avenue could we take there seeing that totally different marketing spin on how they choose to represent athletes which is super compelling it's like i felt like it was nothing that was being done before so how can you know can realtree be part of that or where can realtree fit in naturally to any of these um, what 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 about athletes gets gets uh you excited you know i think they have a they have a platform here's what gets me excited it has to be genuine there has to be a genuine interest for the outdoors and you know, for them to, you know, hunt fish or just have something, don't have it forced. But when you get that guy or girl that's, that's really into it, that loves to do that as their, you know, their side hobby when they're not like playing basketball, football, MMA, which MMA is a, is a fantastic example. We're watching Bryce Mitchell really closely um, for the past couple of years. And he's been hounding Dana White for a pair of camo shorts. That's all he's been talking about camo shorts, camo shorts. Well, with UFC's contract, Reebok, Reebok was like, no, I mean, they make a kit just like a uniform, just like anybody, everybody wears the kit for that fight week, right? It's the same, it's generally the same thing. And he just been asking and asking, he would win his post fight interview. He would yell at Dana and he would talk about giving me my camo shorts. And we saw it again. I was like, you know what? Talk to Tyler. We said, we said, let's reach out. Let's reach out to Bryce and his team and see what we can do because the the last fight he won, Dana was like, all right, kid, you'll get your camo shorts. So we thought, okay, amazing opportunity. It's one of those, just like everything, you know, the stars aligned for that one because he was like a man's man. He, he loved to hunt. He loved to fish. He was just like salt of the earth, great guy. And uh, he really wanted camo shorts. So after talking to him, that opened up doors to work with UFC, Reebok and a fighter and be able to try and get him camo shorts. So if you've got, you know, Dana White saying you're going to get him, uh, all right, maybe there's something here where we can we can get some camo shorts on this guy, get him in the ring, highlight that. Because, you know, if we rewind all that, we have a huge audience that loves to watch UFC. We see it from the guys that we, you know, we sponsor, that we partner with, we hear about it. So like, how do we naturally get into that space? Well, with somebody like Bryce is like the perfect spokesperson. And I think when you, when you can align athletes that are the perfect spokespeople, and they don't have to be, I think perfect is probably the wrong word, but 
an ideal spokesperson for just, you know, off the field? Like, what do you do in your off time? Like when, when you were at Vayner, like Matt, right? Matt Paradis, all he thought about on his bye week was, where am I going to hunt? <laughs> right? And you get, you get guys like that. You're just like, all right. I mean, that, that just makes total sense. Let him be an advocate for Realtree. Cause that's what we're about. It's family, friends, outdoors. And it's just like looking for those, those types of guys that want to continue that beyond being an athlete. I think that, I mean, the athlete part's great, but finding those natural synergies in, inside that space, I think is even better. So. And how do you find those, like, even like outside of just athletes, like there, cause there's so many people, I'm sure then there's so many yeah. options. How are you guys, is there a system to categorize that or is it really just like with something like a Supreme partnership or with something like partnering with Bryce Mitchell? Is it like, this could work, let's follow it. Yeah. I think we're trying to get better at that. Um, You know, we did two weeks ago. We, I think it's the fastest that we've ever pulled someone on board our team, meaning somebody that we saw three guys in Arkansas saw were really passionate about duck hunting and they were putting out amazing content, but they were doing it for themselves and because they love it. And you start and you see that. And it's just a lot of times I feel like it's experience um, just from seeing, seeing things over and over when you, you know, when you can look at somebody's content and realize like it's genuine, right? You kind of know it's going to work. There's no such thing. I think still think is like, Oh, I'm going to create this to go viral. That, That doesn't happen. But like, I feel, I feel like we can all tell when something's super genuine. Like we just saw it with like the, the cranberry or ocean spray, like stuff, like things that just are legit genuine. So, you know, we saw this group of guys, it's really how we felt about them, like doing something that they love. So let's, let's talk to them about representing Realtree in a capacity where, you know, they, they have a, it's almost like a grassroots type of thing where they have a network of people. They're really influential in their area. And um, in the same way that, you know, I've seen, you know, some strategies work where, you know, you just look for micro groups of influencers instead of looking for the 10 million group, let's look for like the 10 or the hundred. And so maybe dialing it back that way, where you've got just a more genuine voice that are, that happen to be repping Realtree. So. Yeah. And like, that's what Jake said too, the hundred true, true fans thing as well. You know, I want to bring it back to what you were talking about ocean spray, right. And, and TikTok. Uh, Realtree does it, kudos to you guys, but you guys do an amazing job, you know, up to around 350,000 followers on TikTok and 2.3 million likes. Like some, some of your competitors are just looking up like Cabela's only has like 700 followers. Like what, <laughs> what, what advice would you give brands uh, on that space? Yeah, it's difficult. I think we're at an advantage because you know, we're using the content that we have right now to try and still explore TikTok. And I know with, even with a growth like that, it doesn't, you say how many there are and how many likes we have. I think that's, that just shows, it proves that people like our content, you know, but just scratching the surface of, I don't know that we've, we've even begun to do anything super original or tag on to, to super original content creation on TikTok, right? We're able to use a lot of what we've already developed and maybe repurpose it or, or repost it on, on TikTok for now until we can find that you know, find that TikTok voice. And maybe there's not one for us. And I think that's what brands have to be comfortable with is maybe you don't model yourself after the most famous on TikTok. Maybe you just do what's great for your brand. And like we're seeing success right now on TikTok for, you know, just based on formatting and editing, which I think is really great. And maybe that's where we're going to, maybe that's where we're going to stay. Maybe that's where we're going to continue to grow, but you know, don't be afraid to try things. Don't be afraid to like, you know, comparing yourself to other super successful TikTokers, I don't think 
in my opinion, is, is the right way to go about creating that content. You've got to do something genuine, you know, to you. Just like, don't remember his name, but the guy that got fired from the, the Sherwin-Williams place for, for making the, the paint content. I'm just like, nobody in, I don't think anybody in the world could have said, hey, that's what we're going to go out and do as a brand and it's going to blow up, right? That just happens. But had they been a little more progressive, I think they could have jumped at an opportunity to be like, hey, this is, and it's a culture thing. You have to be able to shift that quickly. You have to be able to jump onto something like that. Like, you know, like Ocean Spray did. They, they're fortunate enough that they could just jump on it and champion it and, and leverage it. Same for that guy. Like if you see something out there, much like we saw those guys in Arkansas, if you see them out there, you got, you kind of got to go for it. And you have to be, you just have to be comfortable with a, a little more calculated risk like that. And maybe you let someone else be your voice, you know, do your background work and, and check them out and make sure that they're doing something that would be advantageous to your brand. But don't be afraid to take those little risks like that and say, Hey, let's let this guy be our voice for a little while, or let's let this other person be our voice. You know, you don't always have to have the, uh, the right idea. So that's really, that's really interesting. And like, obviously like authenticity wins, that's not a new thing in social media, but the, cause we talk with some of our clients, like one of our clients is a pretty decent audience on TikTok, And we told him there's huge opportunity for him because he has a proven track record of a personality that people want to attach themselves to. So if that personality is also a part of some brand's values, he is automatically like an asset, a spokesperson, boom. Yeah. He could be running a company's TikTok. Whereas like, you don't know if that, if there's somebody in that company that can do that in front of the camera. Right. And it makes it, it makes it incredibly hard to pitch yourself and hope you fall into that mold where now, I mean, people get to, they scale to a certain point where it's like brands are finding reasons to fit them into their mold or say, Hey, we think you would be a great spokesperson. And it's just like, I don't know that there's a formula. I just, other than being genuine and doing what's getting, you know, some, you know, the best response, not everything's going to be a hit, not everything's going to be a winner, but like, if you can just shift and move, I think, you know, you'll get a brand that can do the same for you and it's a win-win. McDonald's and Travis Scott, like I never would like, never would have thought that those two brands. What did he, he pocketed like a hundred million dollars, you know, last year or this year. I'm just like, wow. Okay. (laughs) Just be you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I never did get any of those. I didn't get any of those Air Force ones either. I'm sad. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Well, Bobby, we're pretty terrible at ending these. David, did you have did you have one last question on your end? I'm I'm good to roll to the lightning round. I think we're gonna have it sponsored today by Blockbuster. Uh, okay. Shout out in the beginning. The is, there last... still, is there still one left in the world? Is there yeah, still... that that one in Washington. I think you can stay in it as an Airbnb. <laughs> I think there might be one in Oregon too, but it might have just closed as well, like last year. But that one, wherever it is, Oregon or Washington, the one Blockbuster left is the sponsor of this lightning round. Thank you. Uh, number one person you'd most want to sit down to dinner with? Gary B. Favorite city in the world? San Francisco. Is it okay to sleep with socks on? Absolutely not. <laughs> Favorite romantic comedy? Empire Strikes Back. Best spot to eat in Columbus, Georgia? Hunter's Pub. Who's the best Gamecock athlete ever? Marcus Lattimore. One of the greatest what ifs in sports. <laughs> yes <laughs> in 40 years what will people be nostalgic for tiktok reruns one thing people don't understand about working with realtree is that we don't make anything <laughs> what's the worst advice you've ever been given <laughs> how much time do we have 
<laughs> I'd say I'd say being the master of one thing. So not being a jack of all trades. I'd say just mastering one one single thing. In one sentence, how do you sum up the internet? The internet is a fire hose. What real tree partnership are you most proud of? I'd say yeah, the re- the most recent one, Bryce Mitchell UFC Reebok. Who who's somebody you think should hop on this podcast? One of my best friends, Neil Summerhour, amazing typeface designer. You've already done AJ. I was going to say AJ, you should get, I think you should talk to an athlete, talk to a Bryce Mitchell from a, from an athlete marketing perspective. But I would say first, Neil, for sure. He's done, he's done type for the NFL and a bunch of other cool things that he could talk about. But his job is one where you would be like, how in the world did you get to that point? And so last but not least here in 2030, we can catch Bobby Redfern blank. Still hustling. <laughs> Great way to end it. Great way to end it. Bobby, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can people follow you if they want to keep up with the journey? So you can follow me, best place is Instagram, the bread, T-H-E-B-R-E-D. Uh, that's where you can follow pretty much anything and everything I do. So hit me up if, if I can help you or give you any advice or do anything for you or if you just want to collaborate and work together. Bobby, thank you again, man. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks, guys. Bye.